this morning, uh, we're going to visit a, an interesting topic this morning. The timing of it really, I guess, would have to do with kind of where we are in approaching the summer. We've just come out of, out of May. May in New Orleans, one of the things you may not be aware that it's famous for, but May in New Orleans would be famous for termites. Right? Don't you all know, you know, you always had the thing where you either turn your lights off if you don't want the swarms to come locate your house and, and potentially move in. Or if you're trying to figure out whether you have termites, turn your lights on so that they will come swarming out of your house and you can notice that, ooh, I have termites living in my house. Termite season gives way in June 1st to hurricane season. Right? So, I mean, just a lot of really fun stuff happening in New Orleans in May and June. Here we are, June 2nd. We already have our second name tropical storm going on, so I'm not quite sure what that says. But this morning, if I had to say, is this morning a hurricane message or a termite message? I would have to say it's a termite message. It's a message about something in our lives that's rather subtle, but very destructive in our lives. If you don't pay attention to the termite issues in your life, eventually they'll eat your house. They'll bring your house down. Now, hurricane, those are loud, noisy issues in our lives. They're very easy to preach on. We point at them and all of us know, yeah, man, I see that thing coming. Termite issues are quiet. They go unnoticed. We don't pay attention to them. But if we don't manage them, they will destroy your home probably more effectively than the loud things, because we typically make some kind of loud adjustments, evacuate if we need to, put up boards, but sometimes we just don't pay attention to the termite issues. Well, the termite issue I want to talk about today would be managing boredom. It's a feature in everybody's life. It's a feature that should be in everybody's life. It's a feature I believe God intended to be in everybody's life. Now, when June begins... Our young people here, those of you who are still in school, this is, this is, this, it doesn't get any better than this right here, does it? You've just finished school. The whole summer is in front of you. Three months off. Well, maybe not quite three months anymore. It's three months when I was a kid. It's two and a half months for you guys. Remember this, by the way. When you graduate from education... That'll never happen again in your life. How many of you parent, adults would just like to say, three months off, I don't have any concept. Oh, wouldn't that be great? And do you guys remember, those of you who are beyond the, uh, the, those years, you remember that, that three-month summer thing? Summer had a certain sweetness to it. I mean, June began with this sense of adventure. The, the mere fact that you could sleep in, there was no homework to do in the afternoon, there was no projects that were due. But then there was the adventure of summer. Endless play, as far as the eye could see. Adventures, summer camp, maybe summer vacation. And you had all these dreams of what you would do. Now, do you remember what that sense of adventure turned into at about mid-July? Boredom. <laughs> now, most of us kids never wanted to admit that. We certainly didn't want to say, I can't wait for school to start. I mean, I hated school way too much to be saying any point in the summer, I can't wait for school to start. But mid-July, we were bored to death. I mean, I vivid imaginings and rememberings of being in my house, looking out the window, window unit, air conditioner blowing in the background, and me telling my mom, I'm bored. I can hear the words coming out of my mouth. There's nothing to do. And of course, you know, like all good parents, mom would try and come up with a list of suggestions. 
which, you know, would just immediately be shot down one after another. Right? You ever try this with your kids? Well, why don't you do this? Or you could do this. Or go do that. You know, those were great suggestions for June 1 and June 2. But you see, I'm a month and a half out now. And I have squeezed all the life out of those things. And they just don't hold my attention anymore. The newness of them is gone. I'm looking for something that's going to be a fresh sense of thrill. And you haven't suggested anything that's going to help me. So, uh, I'm just bored. You know, the reality of life is, life gets boring sometimes. There's moments when everything is not the latest thrill and adventure in our lives. Now, that's hard for us, especially today. They didn't have any of this stuff when I was a kid. You know, all the extreme stuff that's out there. Extreme is like a common word today. Everything is extreme. There's no more normal anymore. Right? There's extreme sports. It's not just sports anymore. There's extreme sports that are out there. There's extreme windsurfing, extreme mountain biking, extreme fitness. Listen, if I just show up in the gym, that's pretty extreme for me. I mean, I'm feeling like I'm pushing the envelope right there. I'm just there. But today, there's extreme elements. There's extreme home makeover. It's not a home. It's extreme home makeover. In the computer world, there is extreme programming. I actually put a quote in your outline from a guy named... You will never see this man quoted in this church ever for the rest of your life. He's somebody named Theron Leishman. He writes for the Journal of Defense Software Engineering. (laughs) What are these people talking about? Listen to this. Growing numbers of people are enjoying high-risk, extreme activities... Everything in our world today seems to be following the extreme theme. Daily, we are bombarded with the demand for things to be bigger, better, and faster. What was once viewed as adequate is now considered substandard and lackluster. Listen, there would have been a day in our lives when a 386 computer would have lit our world up. (laughs) Try and give that to somebody today. (laughs) Just... I mean, there's more memory on your cell phone than was in those things, right? Because we've gotten bigger and faster. And, you know, none of us stopped at 486 and said, no, this is, this is enough. This is quite enough. I'm, I'm, I'm as satisfied as I can get. Please, you don't need to invent anything further. Dell, you can go out of business at this point. We've arrived at all that we need. Right? We're not there now. We want something bigger and faster, even though things are amazingly bigger and faster. We are entertainment thrill and fun junkies, especially the young people. If you are here today under the age of 35, you have grown up in a fun, thrillomatic world. And we just can't wait for the next thrill. Our whole life is about the next thrill adventure in life. The Milwaukee Sentinel says, we have raised a generation of children addicted to the pursuit of thrill. Generation extreme is in our midst. We are a thrill-seeking, agenda-driven society. Now, every moment of our lives, we are attempting to grab all the gusto that we can possibly come up with in every category of our lives. Now, maybe we've not paid attention to this, but our lives are running at a pace that is causing the vibration to make the rivets come out of our lives. I mean, we're, many of us are just coming apart at the seams. We think that's normal because everybody else is doing it. We think the pace of life is normal. We have filled up every second of our lives. And an article 
that I read from Psychology Today titled The Overbooked Child by David Elkins. It says, are we pushing our kids too far? More and more children, like adults, are involved in far too many activities. Listen to the article. The perfect picture of a balanced childhood, one in which our kids go to school, do a little homework, and play fort, is a myth for many youngsters. More and more children, like adults, are involved in far too many activities. Nine-year-old Kevin was anxious, having trouble sleeping, and complaining that he was tired all the time. A medical exam revealed no physical problems, so the pediatrician suggested his mother talk to a psychologist. When we met, I asked about Kevin's schedule. His mother told me that in addition to school, he was involved in three team sports, church activities, scouts, and had piano lessons twice a week. Finding nothing else to explain the child's symptoms, I suggested his stressful schedule might be the cause. His mother looked at me as though I were crazy. Give me a break, she said. Kevin doesn't have any stress. He loves everything he does. She, too, was under pressure. She worked full-time, and because her husband's job required him to travel, she was responsible for most of the household chores and child care. Yet, despite her own grueling schedule, she had enrolled Kevin in a dizzying number of extracurricular activities. Kevin is not unusual. Millions of children across America feel overwhelmed and pressured. Dr. Alvin Rosenfeld believes that enrolling children in too many activities is a nationwide problem. Overscheduling our children is not only a widespread phenomena, it's how we parent today, he says. Parents feel remiss that they're not being good parents if their kids aren't in all kinds of activities. Children are under pressure to achieve, to be competitive. I know sixth graders who are already working on their resumes so they'll have an edge when they apply for college. You know people like this. You know you've got to get them into the feeder school that takes them into that school that takes them into the future. Right? You know some people like that? Middle-class children in America are so overscheduled that they have almost no nothing time. They have no time to call on their own resources and be creative. See, we are, we are living in a world that hates quietness. It can't stand to be still. It wants to be moving and constantly doing and going after something else. Thrill a minute. Search the horizon. Invite in the barrage of noise and activity into our lives. Now, let me make a little side comment before I talk about managing boredom. There's a reality that boredom, and I'm using this word very loosely, because boredom, I mean, boredom, if you're a young person, boredom is... Um, by way of negative things, it's right next door to hell, right? I mean, there's boredom and then there's hell. I mean, th- those, are the, those are the two worst things that can happen in, in your entire life. Being bored, oh my, uh, it, it's, it's an incurable disease. It's terrible. But I'm going to use the term loosely here, but let's face the reality. Things in your life that are supposed to be in your life and supposed to remain in your life at some point are going to become predictable. They're going to become familiar to you. The newness of them will be worn off. They're going to be common. They won't hold your interest because when you stare at them, they they pronounce something you've never said or seen or heard or touched or experienced before. At some point, they stop offering you that to a huge degree. And 
when you, you take the, the mindset in our world that's, that wants something extreme, it wants a thrill all the time, then the things that are commonplace in our life are about to suffer some severe damage. And I, I think in this world, it is one of the reasons why marriage, for instance, is in extreme trouble in this country. See, because marriage at some point will move from I don't know you to how thrilling to discover you to uh, I've never seen you look so wonderful before to I just feel a certain way when I'm with you. At some point, all those things will no longer be new and you will experience them and you will have had conversations on just about every topic under the sun. You will know exactly what your husband or your wife thinks about everything that's worth thinking about at some point. And the newness will be gone. And what will you do in the day that you have been programmed to look for the next thrill? Well, in this country, you'll probably look for the next person to occupy that space. And you'll want to move on from that person. See, because you've been taught, I can't manage boredom. I don't know what to do when things get familiar to me. A real funny exercise if you want to do this. When my wife and I, I surprised my wife on our 10 year, the 10th anniversary of our first date. I told her what we're going to do is we're going to go out on our first date again. Now, here's here's the rules though. I'm going to come pick you up and you have to actually reenact the first date with me. So you can't act like you know anything about me. And you actually have to play the role of the first time that we were together and I have to play the role the first time that I'm together with you. Now this is 10 years later and so we already know each other very well. But we had to we went through all went to the same places, just went traveled and did exactly the same stuff that we did the first night and asked questions like what what kind of stuff did I ask you that first night? And went through all those questions and asked them again and listened to each other's response. It was it was comical, but it was interesting to do that. Well, you know, at some point your marriage is going to be very familiar to you. Are you ready to handle that? A lot of things in your life. Pivoters. If you're a pivot age person, if you're in your 20s, you are, you are living in a world that's telling you, search for thrill. Live life on the edge. Look for the best opportunity to experience the most heightened elements of everything that's available to you. Now, what that's doing to you, let me tell you what I'm watching it do to you. I'm watching it put you right next door to sin. Because it presents itself, you know, at all costs, experience thrill. At all costs, experience entertainment. At all costs, make sure you're having fun. And so, it's, it, if that's what we're programmed for, to, for me to be tantalized by everything, I'm going to begin to live right next door to a lot of temptation in my life. Because I want to be thrilled at all costs. See, I don't know how to be bored. Don't do that to me. You might as well send me to hell if I'm going to be bored. I don't know how to handle it. Right? You guys recognize this about yourself? If you're in, if you're in your 20s, this is how you make plans. You don't make plans. You keep every option open. There's an event coming up. Well, you might be there, but no one knows whether you're going to be there because you want to keep all options open. There could be a better deal coming up. Sure, I know I've been invited to this thing over here, but, but this group over here could invite me to that. That would be more fun. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to keep my options open. I'm not going to commit to anything. So no one really knows when I'm going to show up at anything because at the last second I could decide there's something more fun to do. 
than that. See, we want to be thrilled. If you're a teenager here, teenagers are in extreme trouble in this country today, in the churches today, because the priority of their life is fun over and above anything else. Fun is part of life. It's part of life. It's not the ultimate in life. It's not the goal of life. Young people who don't prepare for the future, don't put any value in who they're going to become later on in their lives. It's just about fun right now. Who can I be around that's going to be fun? What can I do next that's going to be fun? What kind of money do I need to do fun things? Everything's about fun. You guys, teenagers and 20-something, you guys have wrecked something called trends. If you study sociology, you study how people live lives, you guys who are older will recognize this. Do you remember years ago when, when we were growing up, trends stayed around for a little while, maybe a couple of decades. Right? Remember bands and stuff, music? Music changes so quickly today. People move on. Their enjoyment gets old very quickly. Today, if, if, if a band stays popular for two years, they've accomplished a lot. Remember, we grew up for at least two decades, right? The Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin and Elton John. I mean, these guys were around for decades. Where is MC Hammer today, huh? Hootie and the Blowfish. Some of you even remember these people? They came on the scene like they were going to set the music world upside down. And two, three years later, nobody even knew who they were. Clothing trends come and go so quickly. You know why that is? Because you're a generation that squeezes the newness out of things and you just move on. I'm done. It's not new to me anymore. I want something else. I want another thrill. Give me something I've not had before. That's a terrible little thing operating in the hearts of people today. It's dangerous. It's in the church. People don't want to stay in churches very long. They get too familiar. You know everybody. They know you. What's there to discover? What, am I going to keep listening to the same guy preach over and over again? Well, the Bible puts huge value in longevity. The world puts no value in it. Go and get the latest thing. Go try something new. Listen, you watch. We'll build a building and you get all the new people who will want to try something new. It's new. They're not necessarily here because they, they love biblical values and they want to be in biblical relationships to where, you know what? Over the course of five, six, seven, eight, ten years, you know me. And now you're finally able to really help me. Because you know my song and dance routine. You know when I'm ducking sin. You know when I'm not walking with God right. Hey, you try that with somebody you've known for two or three years. In a casual bump into you, see in the foyer for about 38 seconds and say hi. Hey, great to see you. How you doing? Good to see you back. See, we want to stay shallow. We don't want to be known. And so this really works in a way that really works against us. The Daily Telegraph says the person who gets bored in a job after a year or who ends every relationship after a few months may well be addicted to the thrill of the new. And you need to ask yourself, is that you? You find yourself moving on and moving on and moving on because we're just addicted to thrilling things. David Stolinsky says movies are fun. Like most entertainments today, they excite the emotions rather than stimulate the intellect. Movies, video games, and TV Try to attract and hold our attention in order to get more viewers and make more money. Dramas are meant to be, well, dramatic. Real life, on the other hand, is often dull or downright boring. 
The problem is that we are spending so much time with movies, video games, and TV that we tend to become addicted to exciting electronic images. Worse, we become addicted to excitement itself. Listen, are are you prepared for your life to have elements of boredom in it? Are you prepared for the teenage years to be boring? Are you prepared for your marriage to become familiar and predictable? Now, now this is not an advertisement for everybody to take your hands off the wheel and just have lousy marriages. Hey, Keith said they're going to get boring anyway. Well, no, you have to fight real hard to keep freshness in your relationship. But the reality is, it's going to become very familiar. Are you ready for your career to get boring? I've been in the same job now for seven years. I'm doing the same thing. Well, do you have the ability to stay, stay longer? Or am I addicted to this? I've got to have something new. I've got to just change the scenery around here. Well, the world we're living in is teaching us to do that. Now, what if we could redefine boring for a moment? What if boring is intended to be in our life in a very redemptive way? What if boring wasn't wasted time that didn't get filled with thrill? That's what our definition for boring is. If this moment can't be filled with thrill, it's wasted time. It's boring. What if it wasn't that? What if, rather, it was necessary time to be filled with him what if god wants your life to have moments where it slows up there's not a lot in it by the world's definition it would be a moment of sheer boredom but by god's design it's a moment for you to encounter him in a particular way What if God didn't design the pages of our lives to be wall-to-wall, top-to-bottom, full of print? What if there's supposed to be blank spaces? What if there's supposed to be some white space on the page for us? I'm concerned because we live in our culture and we need to pay attention to things that are working against us spiritually. just need to pay attention to that. I hope I'm going to serve you this morning by making you aware of the culture that you live in. The culture you live in never builds rest into the pace of life. It never does it. There's no room for it. See, unlike, you know, the guys who go to Mexico, they they will go to a culture that still has elements of rest in it. Because the people aren't like rich and wealthy Americans. See, what we can do is we can work hard and we can play hard, too. We have a very unique society that we live in. It's not true for most of the world. And so in that society, we just can run at a pace all the time. We can run busy at work and we can run busy in relationships. We can run busy with toys and hobbies and activities and things to do and places to go and entertainment. We can fill our lives up wall to wall and never build into it any sense of a rest stop. Just keep driving all the time. Yeah, some people, uh, I don't know if you probably hear it today, you kind of can't sleep without white noise. You know what white noise is? Kind of that background noise. You need a fan blowing. Or you need uh, some kind of a hum of something going on, or you shh, or maybe ocean sounds, whatever it is that you use. Some people just can't sleep without white noise. Well, some people can't live without white noise. They can't live their lives. They don't know how to be still. They've got to just kind of constantly have a barrage of noise and activity going on around them. Stir it up, plan it, overdo, overbook have too many things happening in our lives. And we don't know how to be still. We don't like to be still. We are a society preoccupied with with staying preoccupied. We've invented gadgets 
to help us fill our lives with noise. Cell phones. Do you like cell phones? <laughs> oh, I'm getting to where I can't stand them. I mean, it, it works for Captain Kirk, but it doesn't really work for me. Instant access to me and to everything else in my life, that's not always a good thing. But we have, we have cell phones. When we're not talking on a cell phone, we, we have iPods draped from our ears so that we can listen to the droning of music or whatever's on the iPod all the time. And when we transition from that into a car, we have a DVD playing in the car now. All the cars come with DVDs. So, so we can always have information and entertainment going on in front of us. And when we get out of the car, we can take our BlackBerry out so that our emails can find us wherever we are. We can have instant access to emails and information and all that's happening in the entire world out there. And goodness knows, please blog me constantly so I can know everybody's opinion on the planet about every issue happening everywhere. I need to stay informed. And then we walk into our homes and listen to the background noise of the TV that's always on. See, we are a people in love with noise. We don't like to be quiet. Biblically, though, we need to be quiet. Biblically, our lifestyle must have stillness and quietness in it. This quote from Mike Bowmore may help us to see an alternative use for boredom. He says, there are dimensions of those tasks of your callings that require, that demand reflection, advanced thinking, strategic thinking, extended unhurried reading, a larger stirring of your soul and your mind than weekly duties and schedules allow for. Now, in in this particular message that was given at the leadership conference we just recently attended, he's arguing for extended retreats, particularly for pastors, extended times of stillness and quietness. I just want to argue today for the reality that what he's saying is true for every one of us. There are elements of every one of our callings, whether you are a blue-collar worker, whether you are a mom, whether you are a teenager preparing for life, Every one of our callings needs reflection. We need moments of thinking. We need to stop and think. We need silence where we can think clearly. We need reading that stirs us. We need our souls to be stirred. We need moments where we're not just running to the next thing and flying through life overloaded. Listen, that's not how God has designed us. When you look into the Bible, you don't find God's instructions sounding that way. See, this is a termite issue, but I guarantee if you don't get this right, it's going to take your house down. You hear me? This is a little thing, right? I'm not talking about fornication and adultery and wasting money and materialism. I'm not talking hurricanes here. I'm talking about something. If you don't get it right, it's going to take your spiritual house down. And it will do it quietly. It will do it behind the paint. And everything on the outside will look fine until all of a sudden something caves in in your life. That's the kind of issue this is. Man was not intended to live a life of perpetual motion. He needs boredom. And then he needs to know what to do with it. Turn to Psalm 46 with me. Psalm 46. I want to pay particular attention just to one verse in that psalm. 
We'll catch its context for a moment as well. Psalm 46, <clears throat> verse 10. It says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Two things I want to focus on in this passage. One, what do I need to learn to do? Secondly, what do I need to experience? Look first at what do I need to learn to do? Well, quite simply, to biblically, be still. I need to learn, especially today, this is not as challenging for some in other parts of the world, but for us it's very challenging to learn to be still. This is an acquired skill. This is something that will not come naturally. Your world will never let this happen accidentally in your life. You don't live in that kind of world. That word in the Hebrew for be still is the word rafa, a verb meaning to become slack, to relax, to cease, to desist, to let drop, drop some things that are going on in your life, to leave alone. I just need to leave that alone, to let go. How do you like this? To be lazy. That for an encouragement. In a way... Be lazy and know that I'm God. Lighten up, will you? <laughs> quit, quit running so hard to the next thing like you desperately need it. Turn down the noise. Would be a mo- good modern translation. Now I'm, I'm going to walk quickly through a couple of things here because the Bible gives us patterns to create stillness in our lives because we need it. And that's going to be one thing that, that I hope all of us will walk from here with a sense of, do I, do I need this stillness that you're talking about? I hope you're going to be convinced that you do. But how do, I, how do I practice it? How do I create stillness? And how does the Bible suggest that I need it? In what form and frequency do I need it? Well, I'm going to suggest two patterns of stillness in Scripture. Regular patterns and unusual extended patterns. Let me cover the regular ones first. Daily prayer would be a a pattern of stillness that the Bible builds into our lives. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And there's there's a revelation there in that little statement. That every day I have a need to appeal to God. Every day I have a need. This day, daily bread needs to be portioned to me. I need to be turning my attention to God and I need to be seeking after it. Jesus had patterns in his life where he would, he would arise early in the morning. and He would go and pray. He would stay up sometimes through the night and pray. This is the Son of God who needed stillness in his life. The Bible would describe him when he would go off to pray, he would withdraw to a lonely place. He'd strip his life down. He'd turn the noise down. He'd get away from people. And you understand this is Jesus. He either had knucklehead disciples asking him questions constantly or he had crowds pressing him to be touched by him. 
But yet he found a way to get alone in a lonely place, simplify that setting so that he could be still before God. Listen, the Son of God had a need to do that. I I have a need to do that. You have a need to do that on a daily basis. Do you understand that every day is an opportunity from my perspective to get turned upside down? Every day. Every day is an opportunity for my pursuits to become ill-informed, for me to be in a panic, for me to be pushing and going hard after the wrong things. That had I been with God and I gazed upon Him, had I seen that oh, right, wrong, secondary, primary, and I, had I been with God to be able to see the horizon of life that way, I would have chosen differently in that day. I would have made that less important and that more important. I would not have freaked out over that. I would have relaxed about that. Where am I going to get that perspective from? Every day I need to stare God in the face and let him inform me on what really matters in life. And let him give me his value system, what he's up to, where the priorities lie. So you and I need, we need daily time to be still. I know this is not an easy thing to do. It's a very busy world that we live in. But we still need to do it. And we've got to figure out how it's going to happen. And we need to put down things that have become too important to us. I put a question in your outline that would be helpful <clears throat> for you to think through carefully. What is crowding out your daily time of stillness with God? What is crowding out your daily time of stillness with God? What are the things that are happening? What are the priorities that you've set? And listen... There's not going to be too many people who are going to list uh, fornication and gambling uh, every day. You know, that's just what's crowding out my time with God. No, I guarantee you that for most people, it will be something good that's crowding out stillness before God. You're probably doing something that biblically should be done. It's still just a matter of you still have to be able to say stillness is a bigger priority than that whatever that is, and find a way to create it in our lives. There's daily prayer. There is something in the Bible called the Sabbath day. And I have to admit, I have not appreciated the Sabbath day the way I think biblically it should be appreciated. I've never taught on the Sabbath day. I've mentioned it, maybe in a message here and there. But there's an element in the realm of it as I, as I studied our situation and what we're facing and looked biblically. God, how do you remedy our lives that are out of control? How do you come into lives that are so crammed, full of stuff? Well, one of the ways God does it is through the Sabbath day. Now, before you, you, know, you go New Testament on me and say, well, you're reading from the Old Testament. That obviously wasn't for us anyway. Uh, I think you need to get around the heart of God who says things to his people. This is, this is not a bad thing that God did. When we hear Jesus handling the Sabbath and correcting those who are mishandling the Sabbath, the issue that he raises is, hey, you know, uh, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is not something to shackle you with. It's something to bless you. The Sabbath day is given to man. It's God saying here, you need this. You really do need this. It's not God saying, thou shalt not do this on that day and this. You need to perform this way, this way, and this way on the Sabbath day. Okay, That's what legalism does with the Sabbath day. 
the heart of God comes to you and says, listen, you're going to kill yourself. You take one day in seven, and here's what you do with it. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Words like all always always scream at me in the Bible. Never, all, things like that. In six days, do all your work. Now, how many of you guys can't get all your work done in six days? Let me see your hands. I can't. I cannot get all of my work done. All right, how about this? How many of y'all can do all your work in seven days? We can't get all our work done in seven days either, right? What, do you want God to create an eighth day for you? Can you just get the fact that if God had created 38 days before it cycled again, we'd be going, oh, if I just had 39. That's the nature of who we are. Listen, six days is enough. It is enough. We're the ones who have a problem with it. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Now, here's the orientation for that seventh day. It is oriented toward God. What I, I need a day of rest, but what I need is for that day to be oriented toward God. On it, you shall not do any work. Now, I love the, I love the legal dynamic of God. I love the fact that God, this is like God, this is like dealing with Bill Treby is what it's like dealing with. This is like an attorney is, is preparing this document knowing that I'm writing this for the loophole lookers, the people looking for loopholes. It's not enough that God says, on that day you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. That your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. We would figure out ways for everything to work if we could, even if we took the day off. You shall remember. Now, here's the activity prescribed for that day. Here's the day of rest. You shall remember. That's what you do on the Sabbath. You remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And there's two elements in that passage, if we get a hold of them, it might actually cause us to see what great value the Sabbath day actually has. It's a day oriented toward God, and it's a day that God calls on me to bring things to mind, to remember something. It's not just a day off, although it is a day off. It's a day of engagement in a way that will produce a rest in me that I absolutely need. David gets who I am dying to steal the title of his book for a series that I would like to do, Death by Suburb, (laughs) speaks of this day. He says, Spiritual life begins to decay when we fail to sense the grandeur of what is eternal in time. It's a day, speaking of the Sabbath day, it's a day not for furthering our opportunities and those of our kids, but to liberate ourselves from the pursuit of such things. Now, how many for us, you would confess and admit that the weekends are busier than the weekdays? Right? I'm almost like, oh, man, I can't wait to go back to work on Monday so I can get some rest. I mean, weekends are 
packed. There's activity and place to go and there's no food, so you've got to go shop. And then there's needs and then there's household maintenance and repairs and cars that are broken and, and grass that needs to be cut. People that need to be seen. Activities that are planned. Parties that are happening. Weekends can be grueling. And then you've got to go to church, too. Good night. Who's got time for all that? What a wearying thing the weekend is. It's certainly not a time of rest, is it? Well, it's a day, the Sabbath is a day, not for furthering our opportunities and those of our kids, but to liberate ourselves from the pursuit of such things. If you'll take a day, if you'll if you let me say it this way, and I think this is what God intended. In the same way that God institutes the tithe as a, main, as a means of liberating us from our money, if you understand the tithe correctly, and I know we've taught a lot on this, but if you understand it, you'll embrace the tithe differently. If you understand the fact that every one of us is prone to become enslaved to our money, fearing not having enough, wondering how we'll provide. Will my job do this? Do I have enough in savings? Can I retire and make it? And we yoke our lives to money and what it can do for us, and we lose our joy, we lose our peace, we live in fear. So God knows... I need to liberate you from your money. And here's the way I'm going to do it. Every time I bring money into your life, I want you to take 10% of it and I want you to give it back to me. That way, every time money touches your life, you will have a source of remembering that's from me. It's not the money that, you, that provides your life. It's me. I provide your life. So every time I touch your life with money, you take it and give it back to me. A portion of it goes back to me. I'll tell you how much. Significant enough so that it gets your attention. It's not 1%. It's 10%. And it gets your attention when you do it. And it causes your faith to never get in your money, but to stay in God. See, the tithe liberates you from your money. The Sabbath day liberates you from time. The two things that will enslave us faster than anything else are time and money. God comes along and he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you, I don't know why God, this is probably the reason why God created a pattern. Why have seven day of a cycle anyway? Why not just have day after day after day after day after day? One day started and then it goes off into eternity. God created a pattern, and he created the seventh day, and then he told man, give that day back to me. The other six days, you do with them what you need to do. It's not that I only want you to be a part of your life on the seventh day, but I want to be a part of your life in a special way on the seventh day. The same way that all my money belongs to God, the 10% belongs to him in a unique way. All of my days belong to God. The seventh day is intended to belong to him in a unique way. It rescues me from growing dependent upon all the things that I can generate and do for my life with my time. All the ways that I can find a sense of purpose and meaning and satisfaction and accomplishment and pursuit, career. God needs to rescue me. Now, don't, don't raise your hands, but there's a bunch of us in this room this morning that need to get rescued from those things, aren't we? You think about what's causing your heart to give you palpitations and high blood pressure and what you're worried about and when you ripped somebody's head off the last time because you were angry. What was, what was that all about? It's about the stuff that you generate with the time in your life that you think you desperately need and it's got to go just right and I've got to have it a certain way. Well, you see, you've got your life bound up too much in those things. And a day of stillness can rescue you from that in your life. And we all need it. The way John Piper says this, we are dependent on him for all we have in the world, for our deliverance and for our holiness. 
For these we depend on the blessing of God. All things are from Him and through Him and to Him. Lest we ever forget this and begin to take our strength and thought and work too seriously, we should keep one day in seven to cease from our labors and focus on God as a source of all blessing. Put it down. Your life will be fine. Oh, I don't know. Well, you might have to trust God then, huh? That's what that does for us. The ceasing from perpetual activity. Now, I know for many of us, you know, typically Sunday is, is the day that's recognized as a Sabbath day. I don't know that the Bible requires that. It just reveals that one in seven needs to be a day uniquely devoted to God. Now, Sunday works well in that arena because it gives us this time together to orient our lives to God. We, we spent time worshiping this morning. We spent time getting God back in focus. We spend time with the Word of God, reorienting our lives. The, the intention of preaching the Word of God is to get us out of the mundane of every day that's clinging to us and give me an eye for the future. Give me an eye for eternity and to see the values and principles of God. Well, that's a, that's a very important dynamic in the Sabbath day that God's given to us. But for many of us, the Sabbath day is a day of great burden. And going to church... It's part of the burden. (laughs) It's part of the pain in the behind. Listen to what John Piper says. He says, The reason that so many people feel it as a burden is the fact that not many people really enjoy what God intended us to enjoy on the Sabbath, namely, Himself. Many professing Christians enjoy sports and television and secular books and magazines and recreation and hobbies and games far more than they enjoy direct interaction with God in his word or in worship or in reading Christian books or in meditative strolls. Therefore, inevitably, people whose hearts are set more on the pleasure of the world than on the enjoyment of God will feel the Sabbath command as a burden, not a blessing. How many of us feel like church interrupts our lives sometimes? Stuff to do. I mean, how long are you going to go today, man? I've got, I got stuff going on. I mean, come on. I don't know that. Uh, I haven't been here in a few weeks. I just got a lot going on. All right, remember. I hope I'll be remembered for this philosophical statement. It's not, it's not original with me, but I'd like to be remembered because I can't remember whoever said it. <laughs> People do what they want to do. And if I saw value in one day being uniquely devoted to God, because I recognize I need a day of stillness in my life, and I need it to be oriented toward God, that I might regain perspective in my life, then this would not be an interruption to that. This would be a means to that. If I don't see the necessity of having one day set aside uniquely out of all the days to orient toward God, then this is an interruption to whatever it is I've got going on today. I've got plans. I've got parties. I've got stuff to take care of. I've got repairs to make. I've got places to be and people to be with. Unfortunately, the Bible puts a huge amount of importance on our need for stillness. I won't go through the special times and settings for extended stillness. You can read through that on your own. Question, do I live my life within biblical patterns? 
Am I honoring, as it were, the manufacturer's design instructions? You know, when life comes, it comes complete with instructions. And so to operate this piece of machinery, it needs one day out of seven to be oriented towards God and to take a break. That's what it needs. Now, what if I just don't do that? What if I choose? That's, that's not what I need. What if I don't choose daily times of stillness? I, that's not what I do. Well, then my life begins to take on activity after activity, after thing, after pressure, after need, after conflict. And I walk far enough in that, and all of a sudden, I begin to become miserable. And then, then I want to talk to the manufacturer, and I want him to honor his warranty. God, my life is broke. You said you'd fix it. You said you'd come into my life, and you'd make my life new, and you'd do all these great things. Well, I'm miserable right now. You don't follow instruction. Stillness to our lives is sort of, sort of what coolant is to your car engine. You start your car engine up, coolant runs through the car. But interesting, though, there's a little thing, and this will be the thing that will break in your car, by the way. You'll have to replace it numerous times. The thermostat. You all know what a thermostat is in your car because it's probably broken. That's why you know it exists. The thermostat is that thing is when you've been driving the car for a little while, you go uphill, you pull a trailer, you stop and start. The heat, the motion from the internal parts of the engine that generate all that friction have finally heated the engine up to the place where now the, the coolant that's traveling around the bottom of the engine now needs to go through the engine. So the thermostat actually opens up and reroutes the coolant through different parts of the engine in order to bring the temperature of the engine back down so that it operates at a safe level. Stillness for the Christian is your thermostat. You get moving real fast, taking on more and more, doing more and more things, cramming more and more into your life, the friction and the heat begins to build up. And there comes a point in your life where the thermostat needs to kick on and stillness needs to come and God needs to bring the temperature of your life back down and perspective needs to come. And the effect of his presence needs to come. See, we're going to overheat engines. And when you overheat engines, you you distort things in the engine. The engine eventually fails. And if Christianity is failing, this might be a termite issue that's causing that failure to take place. Piper says, accept the gift of one day's rest a week. Stillness. Humble yourself to believe you need it. And be willing to admit that your wealth and your significance and your true advancement in life depend far more on God's labor than on yours. Devote one day a week to focus your attention on God in a special way. Keep a holy day and devote yourself to those things that deepen your love for God. Listen, before we plan and dream and purpose and act, God intended for us to be still and know that he is God. That's the right starting place. If I don't be still and know that he is God, whatever I'm planning, whatever I'm dreaming about, whatever I'm purposing, whatever I'm acting on is ill-informed. I can't possibly be knowing how to do that thing right. And I can't know the place it's supposed to play in my life. I have to be still Know that he is Lord. Now, what is it? Let me talk about this experience next. We are to be still, and then we're to experience something. And the word here, to know, is the word yada. Put the definition in your outline. It's a verb meaning to know 
to learn. Now listen, if you translate this meaning into the text, be still and know. Be still and learn. Be still and perceive. I mean, actually become aware that I am God. Be still and discern I am God. Be still and experience I am God. Be still and confess. Be still and consider. This is one of the primary uses. means to know relationally and experientially. Oh, this is, this is the starvation point for Christianity. We know information about God, but, but we don't know Him experientially. We don't know Him relationally. The Bible says, taste and see. That's, that's experiential. There's an element of reality that God intends to bring into our lives. Be still and get it. Be still and experience God that way. You, you know, we're looking through Psalm 46 here. Back up. This, this psalm is, is written as the psalmist is remembering and rehearsing and bringing back to mind elements of the character of God and what God has done. And this is, this is an exercise that we need to do by the time we get to Psalm 46. We may have forgotten where we started. This is where Psalm 46 starts. The one that says, be still and know. Be still and know what? Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Hold still until you know that. Don't just you know, listen. You're going to listen and hear me say that. That doesn't mean you know it. It doesn't mean you're convinced of it. It doesn't mean you've perceived that that's really who God is. You need to be still sometimes until you get it. Don't just fly by it, punch a card, keep going. Be still and know it. And listen to the effect. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though, the, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, though all the things occur in the categories of your life that right now are threatening you and making you afraid, Be still and know, know what? Know that God is a refuge and a strength and a very present help in trouble. The next three verses. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. Sit still and know that. Hold still until you perceive God is in the midst of your life. Hold still. Do you sense Him near? Are you aware that He's with you? See, the effect of Him being aware is she will not be moved and neither will you. God will help and He will help you. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, He utters His voice, the earth melts. It's over. <laughs> Let the situation rage all at once. When your God speaks, it's done. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And do, do you know that? Listen, can you, can you see yourself getting into situations of life where you become afraid, challenged, over your head? You see, I need daily, and I need particularly weekly, and I will need extended times where I can be still and know God is with me right now here in this. God is with you in your bad marriage. God is with you in your financial debts. God is with you in your conflict and in your broken relationship. God 
is with you. Are you convinced of that? And if we're not, it may be because we don't hold still to let God meet us and show us that. Verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord. Come, yada. Come, consider. Come, remember, as we're told to do on the day of the Sabbath. The works of the Lord. How He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. Matt, you can go ahead and come back up. Listen, it is, it is this knowing, this knowledge, this yada that provides for us a sense of, of much needed perspective in our lives. You know, you know why we get caught up in running the rat race the way we do? It's because we've lost perspective. God didn't invent a life that was too big for us. We invented that life. We invented that life because we got convinced that we have to have that, and we have to achieve that, and we have to go there, and we have to be with that person. And so we've invented life, and we have to be thrilled. We need to be entertained. It has to be fun. If I have a spare moment, I need to fill it up with this. We've invented that life, and we've lost perspective, and I need to get with God. I need to be still and know God. Let God change the borders of my life. Let Him tell me. Keith, that's... That's really not that important. If you get to it, you get to it. But if you don't, you don't. It's not that important. I'm rearranging my whole life around that thing because I've lost perspective in my life. This knowing, this yada provides much needed conviction. Let's be real honest. There are points in our lives, and there's probably some here this morning, You don't want to turn down the noise in your life because if you do, you're going to hear God convict you. You fill every moment. You run after every meeting you can be in. You stay with people constantly. You listen to music all the time. You're watching the TV. You're interacting with folks. You're making plans. There's never a spare second in your calendar because you're scared to be alone with God. Because he's going to bring up that issue. You know, that one. And you don't want to deal with that one. And you're trying to keep the noise level up to where you can't hear God tell you, stop doing that. Change your life in this area. You don't want to hear him say that. I need to be still. I need to be convicted. I need to know that I can encounter God in such a way that's going to provide for me a sense of inspiration, a sense of launching me into mission. When you see men in the Bible that encountered God, you find people that were on a launching pad into something. Isaiah, before the throne of God, becomes the great prophet of God. Here am I. Send me after his stillness before the presence of God. Moses, 80 years old, gets still before a burning bush and changes the world on a mission from God. Even Jesus, 40 days alone in the wilderness, 
to begin the ministry that he would have upon the earth. See, if, if we're finding ourselves, and, and this, this is true, whatever role you're in, you lack vision, you lack passion for your job, for your family, whether you're a mother who's needing to raise children or whether you're a, a man needing to lead a business, be still and know God in such a way that you get inspired and how you live your life and the things that God's called you to do. And I want to close with some thoughts from Mr. David Getz here. So we just take this in. But his thoughts were very provoking, very helpful, very re- real about this need in our lives for stillness. He says, In the toxic dump of efficiency and control, the first act must be countercultural. A decision not to act. This is the first spiritual practice. A choice to listen and wait for God. Making time for space for God is the most basic element of spirituality. You can't stop your busyness, really. I I, want to argue with him on that one. I don't have a life to stand on in order to do it. I've not been able to stop my busyness. You begin to open your life to God in small amounts. You don't need a condo in Beaver Creek or a monk's cell on the grounds of a rural retreat. You need just the modicum of will to begin the practice of solitude and swim upstream, upstream against the suburban current. He goes on and he says, The practice of solitude may be the most important spiritual discipline for the suburbs. Interesting. And it is probably one of the most difficult to practice here. At least with a Bible study or a small group, I'm forced into the discipline by the fact that I have to attend something. But with solitude, there's no penalty for missing the practice. Life goes on. No real change. No real damage. One day you arise. This is tragic, but it is so true. One day you arise and discover you wouldn't know God was at work even if there were handwriting on your wall. You have no capacity for seeing God. I can't think of anything more tragic that could occur in the life of a believer is to lose the capacity to see and notice God. One last thought. He says, falling in love with eternity is staying and creating space in one's life for solitude. It may be as simple as getting up earlier each morning or buying a decent pair of earplugs. <laughs> Some of you moms probably need that. Without a line item for quietness, the days get used up carpooling, working on another degree, making partner in the firm, planning yet another birthday party. One awakes some morning and finds that three years have slipped by. It's like noticing one early fall day that your three-year-old can finally pump his legs and swing by himself. He no longer needs you. It happened when you were not paying attention. Perhaps many dreams have been fulfilled. A move to a larger house, to vice president, to a condo after the kids have finally moved out. But the soul has become like a boarded up discount store in an empty parking lot with weeds rising up out of the pavement cracks. That's a tragic description. Listen, this summer, this summer, this would be a good 
time just to to make this an issue for us in this season that we call summer. You will be tempted with thrill after thrill after thrill. You'll be tempted to take every spare second of your life that you can possibly find and fill it up with something that will thrill you. You'll be tempted to overload your schedule and overload your life. Young people here, you'll be bored. You will be bored this summer. This summer, be still and know that He is God. Figure out how that's going to happen. Follow the, follow the instruction manual. Daily stillness. Weekly stillness. And find opportunities for extended stillness. So that God can reach in, touch our lives, refresh us, revive us, restore us, invigorate us, inform us, convict us, reach us, relate to us. Let's stand up together. The reality that this verse touches is simply too easy to find in our lives. Lord, I thank you for the ease this morning, sadly, of a message that none of us can escape today. None of us are exempt from this. Our culture, the pace of our lives, has made sure the advertisements of this world, the things that tantalize our flesh, Lord, we, we don't know how to be still. We can't stand boredom. We run from it. We want something to do all the time. Lord, remind us the ultimate something to do is you. Lord, these things were never the objects for which we were created. You always have been. Lord, my heart needs nothing like it needs to know you, perceive you, experience you. Consider you. Ponder you. Lord, would you impart grace to us? Impart ability to us. Holy Spirit, show up in our lives with power, efficiency. Come argue with us. Come convince us that we might find great value in being still and knowing our God. God, let this summer be a season where that gets accomplished and it will last for the rest of our lives. Teach us how to live daily, still before you, weekly, still before you, and in times, extendedly, still before you.
I cry, oh. 